sit here in dreamland now. Lovely close control there by Weller. Chance on for Birchin or the whack one. And it's a beautiful goal. What about that one? Stevie Clarence has given Leicester a place in the Premiership. Amazing. Leicester City. Hello and welcome to the Fox 8 podcast and the second episode of the What If series. The first episode, we covered the topic of what if Martin O'Neill didn't leave Leicester in the summer of 2000 to join Celtic. Episode 2, we're going back a little bit further. We're back in the 60s and we're asking the question, Rob, what if Leicester City won the double in 1963? I think this one's going to be really interesting because the, the previous one, as you say, both of us were alive and um, for the most part uh, uh, relatively aware of what was happening within football during the Martin O'Neill era. Whereas this is um, a time of Leicester's history that we will have read about, that we'll have heard about, um, but not had any first-hand experience of. So this is going to be a sort of a... Uh, a mix, really, of a history lesson in terms of what actually happened, but then also uh, an interesting twist on it, as you, if you will, um, as to what if certain things didn't happen uh, as they did back in the 60s. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, so am I. Looking forward to this one. It's a bit of a trip into the unknown, as you said, but I've been doing plenty of research, plenty of time on my hands, as a lot of people have at the moment. And so, again, we're going back to the 60s. Leicester City, the Ice Kings, known as the Ice Kings because it was a very, very cold winter in 1963 into 1964. And first of all, let's just set the scene completely. So it's 1963. Former City captain Matt Gillis is in charge of Leicester for the third season. And Leicester, they've been a top-flight club since winning Division 2 back in 1956-57. And they've been successful. They finished sixth in 1960-61, also losing the FA Cup final the same season. They lost 2-0 to double winners Tottenham. Now, Leicester have played European football a bit briefly in 61-62. They lost to who else but Atletico Madrid in the Cup Winners' Cup. They qualified because Spurs won the double that season and Leicester were beaten finalists in the FA Cup. So they qualified for the what was Cup Winners' Cup, a competition which I still think actually should be in existence now, but never mind. Uh, they finished 14th in Division 1 that season. Now, the manager, Matt Gillis, was an exceptional talent spotter and he would be away from the club for weeks on end at times, scouting players. And Leicester have a good young side. Many players plucked from lower or non-league sides for little or no money at all by Gillis. Uh, two important signings, though, were made in the spring of 1962 and they were David Gibson and Mike Stringfellow both arriving for £25,000 each and this added another dimension to the team pace out wide and Leicester's playing style turned into a system that's actually quite familiar to City fans they closed down players quickly and they counter-attacked quickly using the flanks and the team at the time were highly coveted and featured very famous players such as Banks in goal Ian King, Richie Norman, John Schoberg came into the side at the back with 
Frank McClintock and Colin Appleton, Howard Riley and Mike Stringfellow both out wide, Graham Cross, David Gibson, Kenke within the centre, and the squad also had the likes of Albert Cheeseborough, Len Chalmers, and also Jimmy Walsh involved. But importantly, Rob, no major signings were made before the start of the 62-63 season, which we'll come back to in a second. But City had players that were in demand. In that season, Gordon Banks attracted a lot of interest from the likes of Newcastle and especially Arsenal. Now, Arsenal manager at the time was Billy Wright, who was reported to the FA for an illegal approach, actually, for Gordon Banks. Albert Cheeseborough uh, attracted plenty of attention from a number of clubs, including Preston. Uh, Frank McClintock from Wolves. Uh, Howard Riley from Blackpool. But the 62-63 season is underway, Rob. And City are flying in the division. They're riding high in Division 1 as we get to Boxing Day. Yeah, it was a good first half of the season, actually. I'm just looking back at uh, at some of the results. And the most of it was uh, green for a win or yellow for a draw. And you've got some... Um, I guess in that list of players that you've just reeled off there in terms of the, the, the key players, you know, David Gibson... Uh, and Mike Stringfellow, uh, just to pick out a few, and obviously Gordon Banks, are, are still talked about today as some of, if not the greatest players that have ever put on a Leicester shirt. And we're looking back, you know, um, sort of almost 60 years there. Um, and a lot of goals scored mainly by Stringfellow and Keyworth. Banging in the goals, beating... Some uh, teams like Nottingham Forest, Sheffield Wednesday were a good side back then as well. Beat them 3-0 away from home in the fourth game of the season. And yeah, riding high, by Boxing Day, they were third in the league. So Boxing Day and Colin Appleton, importantly, takes over as captain from Jimmy Walsh. On Boxing Day itself, City thrashed Leighton Orient 5-1 at Filbert Street to go third in the division. And Boxing Day is also start of the big freeze. Now, temperatures, they drop to minus 16 in parts, and the freeze, it lasts for three months. And Leicester's groundsman at the time was Bill Taylor. Now, he had relayed the Filbert Street surface in the summer of 1962, and he had mixed the topsoil with fertiliser and weed killer. And what this produced was a chemical reaction which helped against the frost. It didn't do an awful lot for the pitch, but it helped against the frost. And whilst the team trained at Granby Halls nearby, Taylor covered the pitch with straw, and he also lit burners with the help of many, many fans. And he stayed overnight to keep the drums burning. Some teams didn't play for 10 weeks. But importantly, Leicester played in five. What a phenomenal effort that is. From obviously one man that sort of orchestrated it, Bill Taylor. But um, lots of, you you know, you read accounts of it. There were lots of volunteers um, to do with the club and just supporters, as you mentioned, that, that were all part of this mass effort to to get Leicester back on on track with their with their title challenge really 45 days they managed to to miss whereas you know Everton who were top of the league missed 70 days as you say Pete 10 weeks Manchester United missed 11 weeks without uh, between playing home games so um it was 
an interesting time and and as you say interesting actually that we've we've chosen to to do this episode in, in the midst of uh, what is possibly i mean without fact checking it one of the longest um times between football matches in the middle of a season since that since that big freeze in 62 63 i'd have to agree as well with the yeah, what you were saying about the, the length of time during the season that uh, we haven't played. I can't think of any examples of since the 60s of a winter that's been as harsh and they've had so long, I mean, you're talking three months, it's, it's a ridiculous time. Although, again, we're matching it at the moment in different circumstances. But uh, But anyway, Leicester, they take advantage. They go 16 games unbeaten in the league and the cup as well, including 10 successive victories, earning themselves the nickname in the press, the Ice Kings. Now, City drew 1-1 at Blackpool on the 8th of April and went top of the first division for the first time since 1927. Now, the unbeaten streak came to an end with defeat at West Ham, but then City faced Manchester United twice in the space of two days. City drew 2-2 at Old Trafford and then beat Manchester United 4-3 in an all-time classic at Filbert Street. Keyworth and Dennis Law both scoring hat-tricks and Leicester once again were top of the league. Now Leicester's next game was in the FA Cup in the semi-final at Hillsborough against Liverpool. Now Gordon Banks has an absolute blinder. He makes over 30 saves in a 1-0 win, Mike Stringfellow with the goal. Ian St. John at the time said it's the biggest miscarriage of justice he'd seen in all his time in football. And he echoed those uh, sentiments many, many years later. But it was the last time, unfortunately, that Leicester won that season. Leicester, top of the league, five games to go. And Leicester had injuries. Banks and Gibson, they missed the last three games. King and Keyworth missed two of the last four. And Appleton and Stringfellow, who were clearly not fit at the time, they missed the last game of the season. Leicester's small squad, remember, wasn't bolstered in the summer. And they made a number of late pre-deadline bids for the likes of Kevin Hector, who played for Bradford at the time. And, importantly, Bobby Roberts from Motherwell, who they failed in a bid for Bobby. He then joined in the summer of 63 and went on to make over 230 league appearances for Leicester. Leicester took only one point from the final five games, losing the last four to finish in fourth. Everton are crowned champions. But Leicester, they're in the FA Cup final and they're taking on Manchester United in that cup final. United, they finished 19th in the division, just avoiding relegation. City, Manchester City that is, were relegated but Leicester were overwhelming favourites going into the game. Most pundits, virtually all of them, all the newspapers tipping up City and, and in a style of a comfortable win as well. United had very good players but were not the team like Leicester. They weren't gelled together the way that Leicester were. United did have the likes of Dennis Law and Bobby Charlton and they had those two games in two days against Leicester which Leicester drew 2-2 and won 4-3. But ironically, it was the Ice Kings that froze on the day. And City let United play. They didn't close down. And quite frankly, they were absolutely dreadful. Gordon Banks made an error for one of the goals. And United, they ran out comfortable 3-1 winners on the day. But you, Rob, have been in conversation 
with Howard Riley a few years ago and he discussed how Leicester played and his thoughts on not only the 63 FA Cup final but also two years prior against Tottenham. Yeah, I thought we were very um, unlucky, really, in 61. We were really playing well, you know, getting on top, I felt, anyway, after about 15 minutes against Tottenham Hotspur. And then, unfortunately, one of our players got injured, Len Chalmers, and we down to 10 men then, really. There were no substitutes then until uh, 66, so uh, it was... Uh, Really unfortunate that it was a bit of a farce, really. It spoiled the game, you know. That's, um, so I felt we, you know, we really had a good chance of winning that because we'd, we'd been the first team to beat Tottenham that season on their own ground, and um, I think we drew a time. So yeah, it was very disappointing that, very disappointing. But '63, uh, probably even more so because we were odds-on favourites. We were about four, third in fourth in the league. Manchester United were about three or four from the bottom, they were odds on favourites and never really, you know, sort of played to our potential that day. Yeah, interesting then, um, the two contrasting tales really for, for the two FA Cup finals, you know, uh, this far down the line in, in the future, we, we kind of put both of them together, don't we really? And we think, oh, that's two missed opportunities um, that still haunts a lot of Leicester fans to this day. You know, we talk a lot on the regular episodes of this podcast about how much we'd love to win the FA Cup. And they were two very realistic opportunities to have done that 50, 60 years ago. Um, the 61 final sort of tarnished a little bit by, by injury. I still find it absolutely bemusing that football in its modern sense had been around for the best part of 100 years then and they still hadn't had the 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 thought to add substitutes to a game. Uh, and then the 63 final, as, as Howard said, um, Leicester, despite their sort of lack of form towards the end of the season, the, the fact that they finished in the uh, in a strong position really overall uh, and that Manchester United just avoided relegation meant that Leicester were odds on favourites. But he, he just said that it just didn't happen on the day. For, for whatever reason, you know, the season kind of went out the window and, and Leicester didn't really, uh, looking back, take any momentum into the final. So they couldn't really use that. So it was a one-off game where Manchester United have just avoided relegation. Leicester are probably feeling a little bit down and a little bit dour about their season and, and with a lot more added pressure on the FA Cup final as, as a way to get something out of what was looking like a promising season. And, and all of those factors kind of combined into a negative really for Leicester uh, and that showed uh, very truly in the final result. So that's what happened in the 1962-63 season, a season which promised so much but as you said Leicester ended up with nothing at all. But what if Leicester City won the double that season? What if the Ice Kings were double winners? Now compared to the Martin O'Neill what if if he didn't leave in 2000, to speculate what would have happened if Leicester won the double would take some explaining. There's plenty of factors uh, to take into account because it was so long ago and because so much has happened. Now, first of all, could they have won the double in the first place? Are we talking complete nonsense? But 
not really. When we look back at what we've just gone over in the last, say, 10 minutes, they were top with five games to go and in an FA Cup final against 19th in the league. So first of all, the initial question is not far-fetched at all, and you can answer the question with a yes. Now, other research, we would look at previous winners and what they went on to achieve. Also, similar-sized clubs and when they had success, what happened afterwards, who won major trophies at the time in the following, let's say, decade or so, and how Leicester as a club fared on and off the pitch, again, in the following decade. So there's plenty to look at and to dig deep into. First of all, now previous winners of the double. Now the double, for many people listening to this podcast, maybe if you are a fan or basically have been around on the earth since maybe the turn of the millennium, it doesn't hold the same weight today as it did then. In the 20th century alone, uh, only Tottenham, a couple of years previous, had won the double. They were the first top side to do so uh, since the late uh, 19th century. It was a huge thing, absolutely massive. And Tottenham, they went on to have a very successful 1960s and they remain, as we know, a top side in England today. The next team to win the double was in 1970-71, which was Arsenal. And likewise, Arsenal, big club as we know. Liverpool then went on to win the double in the 80s. And then Manchester United and Arsenal more recently. So there isn't a club of a similar size to Leicester who have won the double. So there's no real comparison can be made to previous double winners and what effect it had on their club. So then we turn to just one of the trophies. We turn to the league winners. And we look at unexpected league winners because it would still have been very unexpected for Leicester because it would have been uh, a number of decades since uh, they've even got close to even trying to win the top flight of English football. As we know, the only time happened a few years ago. So Ipswich, a couple of years uh, prior, had done very well. They got promoted and then they won the first division in 1962 under Alf Ramsey, who led them from the fourth tier in 57 up to winning the title in 62. They were promoted, as I mentioned, the f previous year. And they maybe took advantage of Tottenham, who were involved in the latter stages of the FA Cup and also, importantly, European football at the time. But uh, their success didn't last, and they were relegated two years later in 64. Alf Ramsey goes on to manage England. So there's no real comparison we can make with Ipswich Town. Derby in the early 70s under Brian Clough, uh, but they reverted back to their norm. Nottingham Forest again under Clough in 78 and had the European success the following two seasons. They continued for another 10 years or so, but then it's easy to point at the catalyst for the success for both Derby and Forest, and that basically is Brian Clough. The next would be probably Blackburn, you'd say, in the mid-90s, but they were bankrolled to success and then yo-yoed between the top divisions since. And finally, it would be Leicester then in 2016. And at the moment, Leicester's win in 2016 will probably have more weight behind it than most of the other examples. Because look at Leicester at the moment, riding high in the Premier League. They've been in the top, say, 10 or 12 of the top flight of English football since the O'Neill era. But we've been approaching the top as we are in third place at the moment and challenging for European places and more than likely get Champions League football this time. So the league win has had more effects on Leicester than possibly most of the other clubs if you take away Brian Clough's involvement. That's quite handy, isn't it? I, I think you're right in terms of surprise winners um, of of the league. 
Uh, and I think it's interesting to to look at it from that point of view, simply because there are so few um, examples of of double winners in the past as well. Um, and and you're absolutely right. Just to, just to touch very briefly on where we are in the in the present day, winning the league um, for Leicester in that shock season has given and and will continue to give them a platform on which to to build and maintain a position as one of the top teams in the country and you can then rewind that back to the 62-63 season and say would winning the double in that season have provided a similar platform uh, a similar sort of um, attractiveness to the club in terms of recruiting uh, players, um, a certain confidence within the players that are already there. Uh, and you'd have to say yes. So you can uh, quite confidently make a reasonable comparison, I think, between the 2016 Premier League win and the what-if Leicester won the double in 63. So we now turn our attention back to Leicester and what they had at the time in the 1960s and also what they went on to achieve in the 1960s and their position in English football. Now, the 1960s were dominated by familiar names apart from Ipswich. Division 1 was won by Everton in 63. Liverpool and Manchester United both won the top flight twice. Manchester City and Leeds were also champions. But Leicester were a top young side with sought-after players and they had their own success in 64. Leicester won their first major trophy, the League Cup, over two legs against second division Stoke. In 65, they lost in the final of the League Cup over two legs to Chelsea. They finished a high of 7th in 66 and reached the FA Cup final again in 1969, losing 1-0 to Manchester City. And Leicester were relegated in the same season. And if you have a cumulative total for the league that decade, Leicester actually would finish in 8th place, ahead of the likes of Liverpool and West Ham, and not far behind Arsenal. So they really were one of the top teams. Now, Leicester City winning the double in 63, it would have been a huge achievement at the time. As we mentioned, the double was only won once in each of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And the effect on the club would have been massive, in my opinion. It's easy to say that winning a double would have propelled Leicester to further success. But when you look at their actual performances, it's actually quite hard to argue against that. And even more, when you deep dive into Leicester more closely as a club. At the time, Leicester had pay parity. So the whole first team squad were paid equally out of a pool. And this annoyed some members of the squad the following season, including Gordon Banks and Frank McClintock. In fact, by the start of the 64-65 season, several players had contract disputes and six players actually had failed to agree before the first game. So that includes the captain, Appleton, we've got Banks, Cross, Gibson, McClintock and Bobby Roberts all in dispute with the club as they kicked off on the first day. Now surely a double success a season or so earlier would have rewarded the players with the improved contracts and they wouldn't have had that uh, problem at the start of the season. You look at the manager, Matt Gillis, was a, a well-spoken Scotsman and likely to have been rattled or overwhelmed by the success 
of a double win. He was an exceptional scout, as we mentioned, and a talent spotter. He had a second-to-none transfer record throughout the 1960s. If you go further on to the 60s, 65, 66, the likes of crowd favourite Derek Dugan arrived for only 21,000 from third division Peterborough. Jackie Sinclair, 25k from Dunfermline. Peter Rodriguez for... So, uh, 42,000 from Cardiff, Lenny Glover then from 80k from Charlton and the double success earlier to that in 63 surely would have increased the attractiveness of Leicester and targets who Gillies went for but failed to sign would more than likely have arrived. He tried for the likes of Colin Bell from Manchester City, Martin Chivers at Southampton, Peter Knowles from Wolves and striker Barry Bridges who was at Chelsea at the time just to name a few. So, a win for Leicester in 63, double success, an increase in turnover. Yes, Gillies went and formed a tremendous side out of basement signings from lower league opposition and non-league opposition to form a side that would win the double. But then he still shopped around at lower echelon of English, English football. And when he tried for those top signings, it didn't quite work out. And I would have imagined that a double winning success would have changed that. Don't you agree, Rob? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and I think it's important for those people that maybe, well, including us that were that were nowhere near even being in existence in, in the 60s, to, to keep linking it to today. Because although the, the football and the formations and the style and the money is all a little bit different, there are lots of common themes that we can keep um, making links with here. And, you know, if Leicester City hadn't, won the Premier League in 2016, then we wouldn't be, I don't think, in conversations now, regardless of how true they are or not, um, topically, uh, with even being linked with a name like somebody like Philippe Coutinho and signing one of the most coveted young midfielders in European football like Yuri Tielemans. Those kind of things wouldn't have happened today. So you're absolutely right. That's the reason that they didn't happen back in the early to mid-60s, because Leicester had come close to that uh, success, but they hadn't really got it. So, you know, th- they would have been talked about um, as the sort of nearly men, really, wouldn't they? They would have been, um, a- a- around the time, you would imagine they would have been thought of as well, maybe as a bit of a, a side that bot- bottles big games or big situations, considering there were five games five uh, first division games away from winning the title and one uh, final away from winning the FA Cup for the first time in their history. So, yeah, they would not have been as as an attractive uh, proposition for potential players as they would have been had they won the double. But also, when you add to the fact that City had exceptional talents coming through the ranks as well, atop of the list would be... Peter Shilton in goal, you got David Nish, Rodney Fern amongst others. And that would have added dramatically to the squad. And it's not actually that Leicester were paupers at the time, towards the end of the decade especially. They eventually loosened the purse strings with British records for players. In 1968, they paid £150,000 to Fulham for Alan Clark and £80,000 for Andy Lockhead from Burnley. That was too late for Matt Gillis, who was sacked around that time. But it's not like Leicester were were poor by any means. They they certainly loosened those purse strings to sign those players. So my conclusion that the double win for Leicester in 63 would have been that extra boost which could easily have turned 
a good side into a serial winning side. The contract disputes would have been resolved. The squad bolstered with major targets actually signing for the club, something which hardly happened at all. And perennially challenging for uh, challenging for domestic honours and at least another league win in the 60s is not far-fetched at all, especially with no one side, an all-conquering team and dominating like we have in the Premier League at the moment with Liverpool and Manchester City. Um, you've got Banksy in goal, added boost of his World Cup win, and more than likely he would have stayed. Leicester would probably have had European success as well, something that many supporters maybe would kind of bypass when looking back towards the 60s and 70s. And first of all, when the question is asked, what would have happened to Leicester if we won the double? People might just bypass Europe because, again, it's not been a huge part of, of uh, Leicester City's history. We know Manchester United were the first English club to win the European Cup in 1968 when they beat Benfica at Wembley 4-1. But before that, Liverpool and United had reached semi-finals of the European Cup. Other European trophies were included. You've got the Cup Winners' Cup, which Leicester entered in the 62 season. The Fairs Cup and the UEFA Cup, though, is a, a huge example of something that Leicester maybe could have been involved with because English sides dominated that competition. They competed in the final between 1967 and 1974, winning six years on the bounce, English teams. The other two seasons, they got to the final and uh, and lost in 1967 and 74. And you include teams like Newcastle won that, also Leeds United, they won. Wolves even got to the final. So it's very difficult to argue against Leicester, saying that they wouldn't have gone far in either competition, probably on multiple occasions. Yeah, of course it is, especially when you look at the fact that there were two European competitions, uh, one of which that you mentioned there, the Inter-Cities Fairs Cup, uh, which has had many reincarnations before and, uh, well, since then, hasn't it? But yeah, the, the total English dominance by teams from England that weren't necessarily ones that you were talking about as being in the mix at the very top of the first division either, you know, so it wasn't exactly, you didn't have to be a world beating side, despite the fact that it was European competition. You didn't have to be an outstanding side to have some, some clear success there. Even though you look at the names of the teams that were playing in it, um, you know, Hungary was a very strong footballing nation back then. You know, Barcelona, Zaragoza, Valencia, some good teams in there, of course, but you know, Leicester would have been able to, you would imagine, qualify more frequently for these European competitions. And it was clear from from the results that you can see that English teams, their style of football perhaps, were having um, some real joy and some real success in that competition. So there is no reason whatsoever to suggest that that wouldn't have been the same for Leicester City. So before we carry on, just to kind of go back on what we've gone through at the moment, it's not too far-fetched, do you reckon, Rob? Are you still with me on this one? Because there were some points in the O'Neill what-if where we kind of went off, well, I went off on a huge tangent. But at the moment, you're with me? I'm with you. I'm following you. Uh, and I like the fact that we had the history lesson first, set, set out our stall. And um, as with the first one, actually, I'm impressed with how... Um, believable this is. Not that I ever thought that you would be going stir-crazy on your own during coronavirus lockdown and imagine something completely far-fetched, but we're on, um, we're on a very, very realistic alternative timeline. 
Okay, well, this might be where it all goes uh, slightly skewed, but uh, stick with me. <laughs> stick with me, everyone. So we've discussed what Leicester did in the 1960s, what everyone else did in the 1960s, what squad they had, how they could have added to the squad, what they did. But we haven't mentioned about the club in in a whole, in, in itself, what they had off the field in terms of facilities. At the time, the facilities were being improved all the time at Filbert Street, but the pitch suffered badly. If you go back to what we mentioned earlier with the fertiliser mixture, which incidentally helped the Ice Kings, but it ruined the grass growth at Filbert Street. And also, off-the-field facilities weren't the greatest, even in that era. You feel that the club, on the back of a double win in 63 and the success that followed in the 60s and probable European success, the club would have seriously considered a number of options. Plans for a new stadium in Beaumont Leeds, a new 30,000, 35,000 in fact, all-seater stadium in the mid to late 70s. They were muted at the time, loosely drawn up and plans were then given to the board. They were dismissed and Leicester, of course, continued to play at Filbert Street until the early 2000s. Now, a successful 60s with that double-winning success and further domestic trophies and European success could well have pushed the board into making such a huge decision for the club. Also, the fact that Leicester had a, a large number of top-class youngsters to draw upon in the mid to late 60s coming through and continued in the 70s, the need to sign top players diminish really and the possibility of selling a few established stars could easily have helped facilitate any stadium move and if this would have been the case Rob then history have shown us that initially it probably would have been harmful to a club the size of Leicester's success Leicester probably would have moved into the position that they actually took up on the real timeline in the 1970s after relegation in 1969 they bounced back in 1971, winning Division 2 under Frank O'Farrell, they very close actually the year before. O'Farrell then left, he was tempted by the lure of Old Trafford, which heralded the dawn of the Jimmy Bloomfield era, an era that many supporters will be familiar with, an era where many supporters of a younger age would have been told about and have very familiar names. Between 1971 and 77, Leicester, they were the entertainers of English football. Bloomfield turned a mean defensive side which got promoted under O'Farrell into a swashbuckling flamboyant side which many fans will be familiar with either witnessing at the time or hearing about and there are always that few players short of a serious challenge plus the style was maybe not conducive for championship success if you think about the long lines of Newcastle say in the mid 90s for a, a, a kind of example and apart from continued top-flight football, an FA Cup semi-final in 74 was really the highlights. But a new ground, a better playing surface, a major increase in turnover and a lot of recent trophy-winning success and a very high standing in English and European football, Leicester would have been a very attractive proposition for players. So after that initial lull in the early 70s, it could well, they could well have received those two or three players to turn the entertainers, into a trophy-winning side. I think those factors that you've discussed would definitely have put them in a, in a much stronger uh, stronger position. Um, you know, if you've got an attractive footballing side, um, then there's only so much they can do on a questionable surface, let's say. So 
you know, if if a team had come to Filbert Street, uh, had played the the surface in the right way in terms of being physical, keeping the ball off the deck, I guess, being more direct, then they were going to have bound to have more success than a Leicester side that were trying to uh, trying to be more attractive. So if you've got a better playing surface, you're likely to pick up a handful of better results, which. Uh, obviously would impact on league tables, etc. Um, and yeah, just the fact that if there was a bigger stadium, if there were better facilities, and if there was that extra added, the actual success rather than sort of near misses, then you would, by definition, have a bigger club in general, uh, and one that would have provided those additional key players. Because you've got to remember and and even if your sort of awareness of footballing history is is limited to the last couple of decades you've got to look at teams that came close to winning titles or came close to winning cups or or even were just on the periphery of maybe qualifying for the top 4 and you would say that if they had and I know we're talking about what ifs but that's the whole point of the of this series of mini episodes is what if that team had that extra player there? Or what if that key player had been fit and available for the whole season instead of just a part of it? And and that would have greatly increased their chances. And I think you could look at a lot of clubs with interesting transfer policies, shall we say, such as a Tottenham Hotspur, who have probably been one or two key players away from uh, a lot of success for a good few years now and I think the Leicester side in the in the real reality in the 60s and early 70s um, and mid up to mid 70s really were being talked about as uh, as one or two key players away from it that is a, a a sort of theme in football that I think everybody could relate to regardless of who they supported now the attractiveness of the club would have been not only for players but also for managers now at this time, a certain manager would have been available on a number of occasions, winning the league with a team local to Leicester, semi-finalists of the European Cup and high finishes domestically followed and the club actually went on to win the league after he departed. It's not hard to say that in this timeline, Leicester would have been managed after his spell at Derby ended by a certain Brian Clough. Now, Clough and his assistant Peter Taylor resigned from Derby on the 15th of October 1973, and he would have liked what he saw at Leicester. David Nish would have been at the club, a player he signed in real time from Leicester for a British record in 72 of £250,000. Future Clough signing Peter Shilton would have been at the club. And Clough, remember, he would want revenge on the Derby County board, who he spectacularly fell out with in his final year at Derby. And what better way to do it than to join the local rivals, mirroring what happened in real time. But instead of joining 2nd Division Nottingham Forest in the late 70s, he joins top flight Leicester City. Leicester with their new stadium, facilities galore, a good squad with brilliant individuals, a history of trophy wins from 63 and the double all the way through the 60s and maybe early 70s, Clough could easily have turned them into the champions again and maybe emulate what he did in real time at Nottingham Forest in Europe, but this time 
with Leicester City. That's where, you know, some people might say, oh, Brian Clough managing Leicester, very far-fetched. But if you take it in the context of what we've been discussing in the build-up to this point in this alternative timeline and what Clough managed to achieve at at Forest after leaving Derby, it, it is totally plausible that that could have happened. It's a much more attractive prospect to to travel from Derby to Leicester rather than to, to Nottingham to a team that's already established in the top flight a team of as we keep saying nearly men but of, of quality players and especially if you're in this alternative reality that we're, that we're sort of um, wandering through now with those increased facilities uh, the improved facilities rather um, and the increase generally in the size and standing of the club both nationally and internationally it's a very attractive prospect, and it, you're right, it's a way to stick two fingers up uh, whoever you've fallen out with uh, around the East Midlands. Uh, and it, it, he, a manager of that calibre would, without a doubt, have managed to get a bigger-sized Leicester City uh, more success. No doubt about it, no doubt. That's obviously a timeline which has gone now nearly two decades away from the initial question, what if Leicester and the Ice Kings in 1963 went on to win the double? But when you have a question asked of 50 years ago, you can go further forward. And when you, on your alternative timeline, have Leicester in a new stadium with all the trophy-winning success on the 60s and 70s, what that would then happen further forward, it would divert into huge tangents, if clubs at the club, would they have had success? You have to say yes, because of what happened at Derby and Forest in real time. They would have had good youngsters coming through again, if you look towards the late 70s, early 80s, the likes of Gary Lineker, etc. And then who knows what would have happened in the future. And that's where we're going to stop the timeline, because any more, you're going way beyond the realm of whatever timeline that we've created. But you look at clubs in the 80s, 90s, and in the 2000s, and even to the extent of today, when they've had success for a long period of time in the likes of the 60s and 70s, people who go to buy football clubs, they want that history there, they want the the name to be well known throughout the world. And uh, Leicester at the moment, if you go around the world, and in recent years I've been lucky to go to many sporting events and bits and bobs we work in different countries, and when you mention over the last five years Leicester City, of course, the league win in 2016 is what everyone knows. Before that, they would have been relatively unknown in many parts of the world. But you go in a Las Vegas taxi and you mention Leicester and they turn around and go, I don't know a lot about football, but I know that team because of what happened. And you go into Brazil or to other countries and they know about Leicester now. But also, if you mention Nottingham Forest, they know about Forest because of what happened in the late 70s, early 80s, and they got that bad manager. Yes, they had Brian Clough, and look what happened with them. And earlier on, you go in the 60s, 70s, Tottenham's, etc., Arsenal's of the 70s, Manchester United, the way that they came through and became one of the biggest clubs in the world because of the success they had in the 60s and 70s, that could have happened on the back of a double-winning success at Leicester in 1963. Who knows? We won't know, but what we do know is that when we touched on it a few times, we've started in 2016 with the league win. And at the moment, when you look back on some of the teams that have had domestic success, especially 
by winning the top flights and it hasn't really worked out for them over a long period of time unless you count Nottingham Forest in that. Leicester at the moment, they're doing the best of those teams who have won that league and fingers crossed it continues. <laughs>